6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 2 Peter, chapter 2. Well, we're going to go into the Word of God, so we always do that with prayer. Let's do bar our hearts. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your Word. We pray, Father, that you would be present and that your Holy Spirit would just open our hearts and lives to that Word as we commit this time and ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, we're exploring, of course, the epistles of Peter, and we're in the second one. In fact, we're in the second chapter of a three-chapter shorty here, a little one, but a very, very important one in many ways. So we're in 2 Peter chapter 2, and uh, you'll quickly discover that what you should do in your notes is also read the little epistle of Jude, because the epistle of Jude and the second chapter of 2 Peter have a lot in common, very similar. They're all about false teachers. Anybody know any false teachers in our day-to-day? Indeed, indeed. See, false doctrines had already begun to make inroads when Peter wrote the second letter. Both 2 Peter, especially chapter 2, and the epistle of Jude, the Lord's brother, half-brother, deal with this very issue. Because an even greater apostasy is to come. Now, these epistles had application for the last 2,000 years. But I think you'll begin to understand as you study Revelation chapter 2 and 3 that it's not only are they going to be around, but they're going to characterize the last stage of the church, the final stage, if you will. So there's a greater apostasy forthcoming, Peter tells us. And, of course, there's a, it's a double testimony here. A double testimony, Jude and Second Peter, when they, the Holy Spirit is trying to get our attention rather explicitly. So these are very, very critical passages for us. And by the way, Paul also dealt with this as a third voice, 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 actually, touch on these issues. Now, a false teacher is not a person who teaches false doctrine through ignorance. Let's not confuse the fact. There are many good pastors around that unfortunately may be teaching things that aren't really quite biblical. That doesn't make him a false teacher. Let me give you an example. Do you remember uh, Apollos? He was teaching John the Baptist's message until he was corrected. In Acts 18, that's dealt with, verses 24 through 28, where they gently corrected him, and and he stood corrected. So there is a case where he was teaching because his own teaching was incomplete. And Priscilla and Aquila, they, 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 anyway, they deal with that. So false teachers here are people who are professed believers who know the truth, but who deliberately teach lies in the hopes of promoting themselves and getting financial gain from their followers. And that's, uh, that happened even before the advent of television. Okay, And so they're able to live in sin to please themselves. 
And it's astonishing to discover the lifestyles behind the scenes of many of these prominent personages that are in the public eye as Christians. They use deceptive means, according to these passages here in chapter 2, to twist the word of God to suit their own fancies. And that sounds horrible, and it is. So this is, not, this is not people who innocently just have been mistaught. These are people that are twisting for their own purposes the truth of God. And that's the tough stuff. That's, this is heavy stuff we're getting into here. And it certainly, uh, I think, is something that characterizes our own media exposures here. Yeah, let's jump right in. 2 Peter 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Peter writes, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, strong term, damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, to bring themselves upon themselves, to bring upon themselves swift destruction. False prophets. See, false prophets, he's referring historically there were false prophets in Israel. And clearly, Jeremiah 5 and 23, a lot of passages throughout the prophets of the false prophets in those days. In fact, there's a huge tension between Jeremiah and the false prophets. The king was listening to the false prophets because they told him, told the king what he wanted to hear. Jeremiah was thrown in prison for his message. And obviously, he was the one that had the true message. The false prophets were misleading the king, and that's what much of the book of Jeremiah is all about. But there are false prophets in Peter's day. There are false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. And it's also among us today. So this little chapter here in this little epistle of Second Peter is very relevant to the things you and I are facing today. That's the main point here. You might understand the church is rarely injured from the outside, only from the inside. The false teachers that are dangerous are the ones that are in the pulpits, and there are those, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies. You know, a false teacher never announces his arrival as such. Hey guys, I'm a false teacher just arrived. No, you have to be armed with your knowledge of the Scripture to be able to identify that when you encounter it. And uh, they'll bring in damnable heresies. That's a terrible, terrible word. You know, I'm, I know I'm guilty from time to time of speaking of heresies or heretics, and I should use that word very cautiously. There are people that have false ideas, not properly informed, that uh, I should probably more be, I, I, my staff has warned me several times, I should be a little more cautious using that term, not to apply it to people who are well-meaning and sincerely trying to find the truth. But in any case, here we're talking about damnable heresies. Are there heresies that condemn you? Are there doctrines that condemn you? It points out to a very specific one, even denying the Lord that bought them. By the way, there is no heresy you'll ever encounter that isn't anticipated already in the Word of God. It, astonish, it astonishes me. As a, I've been a Christian for over 60 years. I can remember growing in those, through those periods amazed to discover almost every weird idea I encountered that was wrong was already anticipated in the Scripture. 
And that's one reason one of the most powerful things you can do is simply study the Bible from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22 expositionally. If you do that, you'll encounter, you'll get armed against anything you may encounter. That's one reason in general, I'm sure there's exceptions to this, but in general, I don't like topical stories. But we're going to teach, we're going to study false doctrines today. Because you'll miss some, for example. So in other words, rather than go at it topically, I think one of the magic discoveries, at least in my life, has been the power of expositional study of the Scripture. Go at, go at it verse by verse, cover to cover, and then start again. By doing that, you will encounter everything in balance. And uh, so I, that, I think that's one of the great secrets in, in, these he in healthy ministries, are those ministries where the pastor goes through the Bible with his congregation, verse by verse, book by book, cover to cover. And uh, even encountering some passages that you may not understand at the time, fine. Acknowledge it and go on. Because the Holy Spirit will deal with that. But, the, but anyway, there's no heresy that you'll encounter that isn't dealt with in the Scripture. Heresy, by the way, is like leaven. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Leaven is always used adversely in the Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. The, 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 the feasts of Israel dealt with unleavened bread. Because leaven corrupts by puffing up. Very descriptive term. Um, comes, and it corrupts all that it comes in contact. Even denying the Lord that bought them. There is a view in Calvinism that, uh, of what they call limited atonement. That Jesus only died for those that believe in him. And that's, that is a doctrine that is easily refuted from the Scripture. One of the passages that refutes it is right in front of us. Denying the Lord that bought them. You'll get the impression that Peter is talking about people who aren't really saved. The Lord died for them too, is the point. The idea that Christ died only for those that end up believing is a, is a heresy. And uh, this is a direct rebuttal to the, what's sometimes called the doctrine of limited atonement. That, died only, that Christ died only for those that, would, that he would later save. That turns out to be a heresy. In John, 1 John 2, 2 is another verse that you might put in your notes. It's a very, very uh, strong one. In, the, the, in first, the first epistle of John, chapter 2, verse 2, where he speaks, he, he died not, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's a direct refutation of a concept of limited atonement. There are five key doctrines in Calvinism, and each one has certain problems. And... Uh, both Calvinism and Arminianism have, have had a, a, a theological war for over 400 years. They're both right in what they assert, and they're wrong in what they deny. There's a path between the two that is clarified quite quickly if you understand the three tenses of salvation. Past tense, present tense, future tense. I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. What do I mean by that? I have been saved 100% by Jesus Christ's completed work on the cross. That's called justification. The minute I trust Christ, I am declared innocent. I haven't changed yet, but I'm declared innocent before the law. That's what we call justification. I'm justified by Christ's death on the cross. 100% done by him. I can't add to it. To try to add to it is blasphemy. 
But there's also a present tense, I'm being saved. We call that sanctification. I'm a work in progress, as so are you. We're, none of us, he's not finished with any of us. That's a work in progress. We're being groomed. This is a boot camp for future uh, assignments and our responsibilities after the harpazo will be determined by our faithfulness and our diligence today. Our behavior matters. You don't earn your salvation. Jesus took care of that. But we can gain an inheritance if we're faithful. And that's, what, that's why Paul was so paranoid in his ministry. Lest preaching to others, I might be a castaway, he says in 1 Corinthians 9.27. What's he afraid of? Losing his salvation? Of course not. He wrote the book on eternal security. It's called Romans 8. But he was panicky about losing that inheritance that God has set aside for him if he's diligent. And he lived in a moment-by-moment -moment anxiety over that issue, in a sense. But in any case, denying the Lord that bought them. And what are these people going to do? These false prophets bring upon themselves swift destruction. Ooh, ouch, wow. False teachers. Their teaching was flattery. Be careful when the pulpit flatters you. Because we're sinners. We need to keep that in front of us. Their ambitions were financial. I don't have to go through the silliness that's promoted in the media. The special handkerchief you buy, it's going to solve all your problems. Just send us your money. Or whatever. It has all kinds of variations. That's one of the great tragedies of many good ministries. They start getting in television, discover they got a lot of overhead to cover, and they start having to be bend their priorities to the financial requirements. Scary stuff. And of course, their lives were dissolute. You know, the, 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 the sequence, one after the other, of famous people who then get disclosed have these dark, that dark side to them. Their lives were dissolute. How tragic it is. Their conscience was dulled. We need to all guard against that. But here their aim was deception. There are people with national ministries who actually indulge in deception. And of course that's spoken of all through the Old Testament. Not a new subject. Jesus himself called them wolves in sheep's clothing. Wolves and sheep, why are they in sheep's clothing? Because they're among the sheep. That's the way the Lord pictured them in Matthew 7, verse 15, and 2 Corinthians 4, Paul deals with it there, and so on. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, and by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. One of the griefs I think we all share is the bizarre picture that evangelistic TV presents to the unbeliever. Many people, reasonably intelligent people in the world, get their impression of Christianity from some of the bizarre behaviors that are on the national media. And uh, a friend of mine who is in a major apologetic ministry says he can be working with a candidate for right up to a critical point, several hours worth, and it can all be undone by watching television for about 10 minutes. It'll just puncture the, the impression that one wants to get of the real truth. Then you shall follow their pernicious ways. 
Asogeus. It's, a, it's a debased sexually is what the term actually means. It means immoral practices. It's used of debauchery in 1 Peter 4. Filthy in the chapter last time. Lustful in... Uh, well, it's, it's filthy and lustful both in the chapter uh, uh, 2 of Second Peter. And uh, the word actually comes from the Greek meaning unbridled lust, excess, licentiousness, lasciviousness, wantonness, outrageousness, shamelessness, insolence. Not a good word. And Jude uses the same word in Jude 4. And this is going to be important in two verses from now. It'll come up again. But next verse says, And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. With feigned words. That's a strange, that's an old English term. Counterfeit words is a phrase we might use. Words that are manufactured or fabricated. The word is actually plastos in the Greek, which is the word from which we get the English word plastic. You know, shapeable words, in other words. They take familiar Bible words and manufacture new meanings for them. They use their vocabulary but empty these words of spiritual meaning. One of the most flagrant examples of this is Christian science. You can hear a lot of words from, in the Christian science literature and, and conversation, and it takes you a while to realize what they mean by those words is totally different than the Bible uses them for. They're very, very non-biblical. And that's a very tricky area to deal with. Many of the cults use words, but they twist the meaning to mean quite, quite empty them of any biblical relevance. And... Uh, they're going to fall in the same judgment as the former violators of the truth, which were heavily judged. We're going to see just how seriously they're judged here. Second Peter is going to talk about it, and so does Jude talk about it. I might add one little comment. God's judgment is never late. It may seem that way to us, but they will be dealt with in due time. Now, Peter is going to use several examples here from the Old Testament. And it's interesting, the, the, the samples he draws are not only instructive to us, as we'll see, but they also are validating. They draw upon narratives in the Old Testament that many people consider suspect. To me, that just underscores the fact that they really did happen. There really were angels that sinned back in Genesis 6. There really was a flood of Noah. There really was a destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to see all that here unfold before us here. So let's look at verse 4, 2 Peter 2, 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus, I'll come back to that word, translated hell here, and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved Unto judgment. Wow. Angels that sin. Did you know that angels could sin? We infer from Revelation chapter 12 that when Satan fell, one third of the angels joined him. Apparently, they had a choice. That's what it assumes. If God spared not, the angels of sin. But what did he do to them? He cast them down to Tartarus. All of this leans, of course, on Genesis chapter 6. And because we've emphasized that so much in our previous studies, I didn't want to 
use this as a springboard to reopen that whole can of peas, if you will. But I encourage you, if that's not familiar to you, to get into Genesis 6 and understand that the first two verses in your Bible are one sentence. Once you realize that, a lot of the nonsense about that passage disappears. Because apparently there were fallen angels that somehow cohabited with human women and produced an offspring, a hybrid offspring called the Nephilim, the fallen ones. And there's a whole study there that's very controversial. There are good scholars that do not agree with the presentation that we make from Genesis 6. But I've been, in, I've been through this for six decades, and there are, are, there are ample conservative, competent scholars that do underscore exactly the position that we present. That doesn't mean everybody agrees. There are some people with a different view. But clearly, the text indicates that these angels did something that was highly inappropriate and, in fact, is much discussed both here and by Jude, as well as the Old Testament. Angels of sin. And what happened to them? They were, God spared not the angels of sin, but cast them down to Tartarus. It's, it's translated hell here. Now, normally the word hell is translating the, the Greek word Hades. In the Old Testament, Sheol, and the New Testament, it's Hades. In either case, that word refers to the abode of the departed spirits, not grave. It's sometimes translated, Sheol is sometimes translated grave. There's a difference between Sheol and grave. A grave can be owned by someone. It's a space, a physical space. Has it maybe a tombstone on it or whatever? That's a grave. Sheol is the region that this departed spirit is in. The Greek term for the same thing essentially is Hades. And normally when you see hell in the English Bible, it's translating the Greek word Hades or the Hebrew word Sheol. Here, the word that's being translated is Tartarus. It's the only time it appears in the Bible. So there's a little mystery. What does the word Tartarus really mean? turns out that Tartarus is a Greek term signifying a region that was as far below Hades as Hades was below the earth. I don't want to go there. <laughs> That's pretty heavy stuff. Where do we get that? From Homer. Homer uses the term in his literature. And Josephus also makes reference of it. The word Tartarus was a Greek term that conceived of a place that is as far below Hades... As Now, the, the word that might be, that's generally associated with by many scholars, is the abuso. The abuso is the bottomless pit. We see that come up in the book of Revelation. And it could very well be that this term and the abuso are correlative. That is, they both refer to something far deeper than just the usual Hades. And that's the, that seems to be the intent here. Now, see, in Greek mythology, it was a place of punishment that the departed spirits of the very wicked, when especially the rebellious gods like Tantalus and in their mythology, if they were really, really, really bad, they went to Tartarus rather than just to Hades. That, that's, that's what the term linguistically is intended to connote here. And most, most uh, conservative scholars that deal with this tend to regard it as equivalent in some sense as the term abuso, the bottomless pit that is spoken of. Now, the term abuso implies the center of the earth because that's the only place that every, every direction from there is up. There's no down from there. If you're in the center of the earth, you can't go any further down 
If you go further, you're going up again. You follow me? It's a, it's a, it's a term out of mathematics called topology. But anyway, let's move on. They, he delivered them into the chains of darkness. We do see reference to these creatures, these angels that sinned. Not just angels that happened to sin, but sinned in a very particular way as Genesis 6 details. And they're chained for a future judgment. Some people suspect that these angels that are chained here that are leashed in Je Revelation 9 might be related there. Could be. The word that's used in the Bible for the offspring of these fallen angels and human women is the Nephilim. And that's what the allusion in Genesis 6, first four verses. And also it's alluded to in Jude, verses 6 and 7. And it seems to corroborate the identity of the Benaiah Elohim. The Benaiah Elohim is a term for sons of God. That term in the Old Testament is used of a direct creation of God. Adam was a son of God. All of us are sons of Adam. Okay, not unless we're born again. That's why the term born again is used. But that term, Benaiah Elohim, is always used of angels in the Old Testament. Angels are a direct creation. And there's a very strange passage, and it's not our burden here to try to go through that whole thing, but I do encourage you to do your homework on Genesis 6 if you haven't done it in the past. But the unnatural hybrid offspring of this intercourse was the Nephilim, which in the Hebrew comes from the verb nephal, meaning the fallen ones. They're also called heroes. They're also called giants. In the Greek, it's called gigantes, which doesn't mean giant. Strange. People think it does. No, it happens to mean earthborn. Gigas, like Gaiga, born of the earth. And it's generally regarded as Satan's attempt to adulterate the human race. God had revealed that the Redeemer would come as an offspring of Adam. Satan's strategy apparently was to adulterate the human line to avoid that. That's why the flood was sent. And there's a whole thing here that you, you really won't understand the flood of Noah, unless you understand that Noah was perfect in his generations. Verse 9 of chapter 6 of Genesis. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Peter. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.